Good evening, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. Loreto and I are back today with talking about California and the final program in our series on Ukraine. The war continues to rage in Ukraine with villages and towns raised, many casualties, charges of criminality now apparently shifting to the east, and the west pouring in weaponry. Our purpose, however, is not to compete with news outlets, cable and radio, but to try to get closer to the causes and possible consequences of this war. And the question few seem to be asking, how will it end? So we are extraordinarily pleased to conclude with one of the most powerful voices for peace today, not just here and in Europe, but internationally. Tariq Ali is a writer of both uh, nonfiction and fiction. He's a filmmaker, he's an editor, and a political activist. He's a regular broadcaster on BBC Radio and contributes articles in journalism to magazines and newspapers, including The Guardian and the London Review of Books. He's editorial director of London publishers Verso and is on the board of New Leaf Review, for whom he is also an editor. His fiction includes a series of historical novels about Islam, Shadows of the Pomegranate Tree, 1992, The Book of Saladin, 1998, The Stone Woman, 2000, A Sultan in Palermo, 2005, and Night of the Golden Butterfly, 2010, These five books are collectively known as the Islam Quintet. His latest book is The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold. Tarek has been uh, long a critic of U.S. wars and a staunch ally of anti-war movements in this country. I first heard him speak in 1968 in London at the American Embassy at one of the first really big demonstrations against the war in Vietnam. The last time was in Berkeley, a stop on a speaking tour in the run-up to the Iraq War. He's a regular guest on Democracy Now! So, so there's a lot to talk about. You've covered many wars, many wars. How would this one fit in or not with recent conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon, our endless wars? Well, this is a unexpected war on on some levels but by me at any rate i didn't think that uh, the russians would um, march in as they did though i have to say here that the central intelligence agency has been aware that this might happen if the united states attempted to build nato bases in the ukraine on the Russian border. And um, let me start by um, quoting to you an intelligence report that was made available to Condoleezza Rice in the Bush White House in 2008. It said the following, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. In more than two and a half years of conversations with key Russian planners, 
from knuckle-draggers in the dark recesses of the Kremlin to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. Pursuing this strategy would create fertile soil for Russian meddling in the Crimea and eastern Ukraine. Now, the author of this report was at that time a relatively young intelligence official called William Burns, who is currently head of the Central Intelligence Agency and having to clear up the mess that ensued as a result of his rejected advice. And George F. Kennan quoted in the New York Times soon after the war began, leading uh, American scholar and uh, defender of the U.S. uh, imperial interests, warned very fiercely against the expansion of NATO. He said, why are we doing this? These are people who have got rid of communism peacefully. There's been no bloody war. Uh, And yet we want to, to bring them all into NATO. Why? To surround Russia? And in why are we wanting to surround Russia? These people are very anti-communist, Putin and his people. And so they, they do not threaten anyone, but will do if we carry on like this. Very powerful uh, words. So it's not that it's the United States and its sort of intelligence uh, outfits have been unprepared for this. It's we who've been unprepared for this because ever since the collapse of the old Soviet Union and the emergence of the United States as the single most powerful state in the world, attempting to establish its hegemony globally, uh, and uh, they've done so with all these wars, the removal of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which I will recall to you, Uh, Cal and Loretta, created the largest anti-war movement in the world. On one single day, millions of people all over the world gathered. I mean, there were, you know, just under two million in London, two and a half million in Madrid, nearly three million in Rome. 90,000 in uh, in New York, 80,000 in LA, 60,000 in uh, Minneapolis. I mean, every single state capital and big city in the United States, you had huge numbers gathering against that war, pleading with the politicians who people instinctively knew were lying not to invade this country and wreak havoc. The politicians ignored it. Bush and, of course, his main allies in Europe, Tony Blair, uh, the Portuguese, uh, eminently forgettable Portuguese uh, politician, and Aznar in Spain. The Germans and the French did not go along with the war and didn't send any troops. They recognized the occupation, but they did not support the war. So that war was opposed Other wars waged by the NATO nexus were opposed in some countries. I mean, I remember we set up Stop the War 
in London to stop the war uh, to stop the war in Afghanistan, and I remember opposing the Russian, the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan at a time when the left was, you know, by and large defending it. I said it will end in a disaster. I wrote that it will leave that region completely wrecked and there will be a mess indefinitely. Well, indefinitely it wasn't, but, you know, it still has to be cleared up, though. But for 40 years, that entire region has been in a mess. So we're used to opposing these wars against Libya, against uh, Iraq, against uh, the Israelis in Palestine, etc. Putin's war is different. How it is is it different? That he has effectively, and it's a very rash and reckless piece of adventurism, imagined that with a GDP which is less than Italy, leave alone China or the United States, he can maintain an indefinite war in, 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 in the Ukraine. That is what he imagines. And did he imagine it at the beginning? And here there's a big debate now. And Putin has fired some top intelligence officials for faulty intelligence. And what was this intelligence? The in, this intelligence was that we'll win the war quickly because half the population supports us. This had been true several years ago that, you know, the polity, the Ukrainian polity was divided 50-50. But when you bomb a country, when you send in troops, when people are fearful for their lives and the children's lives and their families, then support for this sort of thing, Russian or not Russian in origin, disappears. I think Putin has lost out in terms of the population, ordinary people uh, um, in the Ukraine. And the longer the war continues, the less likely it is that he's going to uh, get any support. But the problem now is this. As uh, Noam Chomsky and I were sharing a platform the other day, and Noam said, I have to ask our country this. Are you prepared to fight this war till the last Ukrainian? And to send in more and more weaponry, to threaten to escalate the war, which is a feeling being expressed by people who should know better, who can't bear. I mean, for many young people, they can't bear to see the images of Ukrainian people, men and women dying. They remind them of themselves. They're people like us. Whereas the people to whom it's been happening for several years now in the Yemen are also people, but they're not people like us within inverted commas. They are Arab people being bombarded by Saudi Arabia, which is armed and backed by the United States and Britain. It's a cruel, evil war. So I think the explanations for the support of young liberals and people like that in Europe and America is partially, not completely explained by uh, identity, I'm afraid to say. 
It's not just opposition to war. Now, of course, they argue that, well, we haven't seen these images from the Yemen. But if that is the case, then you have to ask, why haven't we seen these images from the Yemen? Why don't we see daily image on the mainstream news, the front pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times from Palestine? Why? It's not accidental. It's carefully managed. So you will never see those images. So the question has to be counterposed. Will you only oppose wars when you see images? And uh, so we're in a grim situation, Cal, is the honest truth. A war which shows no sign of ending. A war in which NATO has temporarily strengthened itself. And most importantly, in some ways, a war which now marks a definitive break with the global order that was set up after the collapse of the Soviet Union. What Putin is also saying is, we can behave just like the Americans do. Why shouldn't we? They go and do all this. When we do it, the world, I'm a war criminal. Well, Biden is a war criminal and Bush is a war. And obviously there is a logic to that, that to criminalize one set of rulers and not another is not taken too seriously in large parts of the world. In Europe, in America, it is. In the white world, it is. But in India, In China, in large tracts of Asia and Africa, this argument of uh, war crimes, etc., is so riddled with double standards that it's not taken uh, uh, seriously. So, But the big problem for Putin, as I mentioned earlier, is this. To mimic the United States, you have to have an economy which is either as strong or at least getting close to the uh, uh, to, to, to that reality that the Russians don't have. And the sanctions against them will begin to bite sooner than later, though most sanctions only affect the lives of ordinary people. And so the question is, the ball, if you like, is back in the court of NATO, because this is not a war just being fought by Zelensky Uh, uh, and a bunch of far-right people and liberals on his side. Or it's not being fought at all by ordinary people in the Ukraine. That's obvious. It is being fought, planned, coordinated by NATO. Because NATO units were already in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, Ukraine may not be a member of NATO, but NATO, NATO was in the Ukraine. So the decisions... The final decision on what to do rests obviously with Putin, but also with Washington. Well, how are they going to do it? Are they going to try and prolong this war to smash Putin into the ground as they imagine and then divide up Russia, break it into little units that they've attempted to do in the Middle East? Or what? Or is this war... Uh, 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 going to uh, carry on for another five, ten years? I mean, that would be a huge tragedy for the people in, in, in Ukraine. And we shouldn't even consider it.
that's why I'm really angry with those people who are more or less chanting more weapons, more war on the streets of uh, certainly of London. And these were various trade unions who support the official Labour leadership. Uh, and have been attacking the stop the war. Uh, that is, there was a demonstration a few days ago, and that's what they were chanting, more war, mm. more weapons. And who is this going to benefit? Certainly not uh, the Ukrainian people. The four million refugees now are trying to find homes elsewhere. So it's a huge, huge tragedy. So I wanted to touch a couple of things that you just mentioned. So you talk about identity, and uh, I would like you to talk a little bit more about that when you uh, refer to this war and how we are dealing with it in terms of uh, who are the people that are involved. And the other thing is naturally to ask ourselves, what is the real role of NATO these days? I mean, from the historical origins, it seems that is uh, obsolete, nevertheless, is uh, enabling wars everywhere, including Ukraine, as you started saying it by citing that uh, uh, report where they were saying this is not a good idea, and nevertheless they proceed ahead with the expansion of NATO. Well, let's discuss NATO first. It's more important than identity in a way. NATO was set up by the Western powers soon after the Second World War. And its first secretary general was someone who had served in the Second World War as one of Churchill's leading generals. His name was Hastings Ismay. Uh, general Ismay became Lord Ismay and then secretary general of NATO. And he was very skeptical in the early days of why this organization needed to be sent up. And he said to Churchill and to other people, he was quite open about it. He said, it seems to me that there's only one function this organization is designed for. Keep the Americans in, keep the Russians out and keep the Germans down. And it was actually perfectly accurate. Churchill was determined to create and help create an alliance that would last for a long time to come to keep the Europeans under the heel of the United States and to tell the United States, not foolishly from an imperial point of view, that this is the only way you will be able to control Europe, especially the uh, uh, especially the uh, Germans. And uh, the German right, uh, Konrad Adenauer and people, knew this. And Adenauer was neutral, not that worked up about NATO, but he was very keen to set up the European Union. And as he told de Gaulle during an early meeting in Paris discussing the creation of the European Union, Konrad Adenauer said, de Gaulle said, but you know, Germany is divided. And Adena said, not for long. This is an experiment which will not last too long. Germany will be united again. Very confident and proved right. Um, so when the question rose, so basically NATO was supposedly created to defend the West against the Russian threat. 
there was no Russian threat. The Russians, Stalin himself was a very conservative figure, kept to the argument, kept to the agreements that had already been signed in Yalta and Potsdam during the war, the division of Europe into spheres of influence, etc. So when he invaded, uh, when he invaded um, other countries, actually none was invaded except the Korean business, which he was very angry about, the North Korean attack on the South, but uh, and uh, refused to send Russian troops in, didn't veto sending UN troops in to back the South Koreans. That's how loyal he was to the deals. Um, it was his successors who crushed the workers' uprising in East Berlin in 1953, the Hungarian uprising in 1956, and then the Czech struggled to create socialism with a human face in 1968. Very little was said about that by either NATO or the Western powers. Of course, they attacked it. They did nothing because they had signed a deal. <clears throat> That's the reality. It was we on the left who objected to all these things, from from East Berlin to Hungary to the... Um, occupation of Czechoslovakia and the removal of the, you know, radical uh, social democratic leadership of Alexander Dubček, who was a communist. So um, what was the need for NATO? NATO could do nothing. So it remained inactive apart from one piece of real savagery, which was organizing the coup d'etat in Greece, in the mid-60s, uh, and uh, helping the Greek army take over because they felt that a more democratic government might be elected, which may, might pay more attention to why Greek should be a member of NATO in the first place. That was all. It's awful. That was the main crime they did. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, this question became central to U.S. strategic thinking again and divided the U.S. foreign policy elite. Some, like Kennan and uh, later Mearsheimer and others said, realists, said we do not need a fight with the... Russians do not go and expand NATO. Uh, and George Baker promised Gorbachev that we will, NATO will, provided you agree on the unification of Germany, NATO will not move one inch eastwards. Uh, Helmut Kohl, the German Chancellor, and his Foreign Minister Genscher met Gorbachev personally and said to him, we will not permit any NATO troops to be stationed in what was once East Germany. And Gorbachev, naive as he was, instead of saying, fine, let us put all this down in paper and sign a new peace treaty. Signatures just took their word for it. I mean, I have never witnessed such an act of irresponsibility. The United States and the Germans couldn't believe their luck that he just agreed to it. 
It's not that he didn't have some power. There are 380,000 troops of the Red Army stationed in East Germany. He had power, could have used it. He wouldn't even have needed to use it had he said, let's sign a treaty on no further NATO enlargement and preferably the breaking up of NATO. He didn't do it. And he could also have said, which the German elite was sympathetic to, that Germany itself should be a neutral state, uh, you know, not part of any military alliance. That would have been quite popular globally, actually. Didn't do that either. So basically, the Soviet leadership, Gorbachev, who later regretted it, and Yeltsin, who basically just went along with what the United States said, though even he was opposed to the NATO enlargement. It's the Russians who let that happen. And once the U.S. got the green light, there was no stopping them. Leave alone not one inch eastwards, they marched 300 miles eastward. And it was only when they reached... Uh, the Ukraine and were attempting to incorporate the Ukraine after a coup, soft coup in 2014, which removed uh, the pro-Russian the pro uh, uh, president. And then they began their work in earnest. And that is, you know, the cause, if you like, one of the causes, not to justify what Putin has done, but to explain how the situation developed over the last 10 years and more. So that is where we're at now. So the United States now, its strategists are basically working out how to proceed. Their plan, which is very foolish in my opinion and risky, is to fight Eurasia at the same time. That means to take on China and Russia. So there's been a lot of... Uh, missile rattling vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, saying Australia and Britain are now in a pact to uh, join us in, with, uh, you know, targeting Chinese cities with supersonic missiles. And were they to do this, if it's not just an empty boast, the Chinese who have hitherto been careful and whose line has been, we are not interested in taking over any other country by force. What we do inside of China is our business. We won't accept your criticisms, but we will not move outside. But if the aim <clears throat> is to provoke the Chinese into some rash action uh, over Taiwan or Hong Kong even, the Chinese will not sit quietly. So I sometimes say this at meetings, peace meetings, anti-war meetings these days, and people can't believe it. And I say, I can't believe it either. But strange things have happened in these times of transition. And a, a nuclear clash or something close to it between the big bars is not impossible. So this is why, uh, Cal, we really need a big peace movement in the United States. You know, the Vietnam War obviously was brought to an end by the sort of striking 
heroism and resistance of the Vietnamese. But the Vietnamese themselves always said that a pillar of that resistance was in the United States. It was the anti-war movement. And privately, many, many Vietnamese at the time said to me, thank God for the anti-war movement in the United States. When you had GIs in uniform, on crutches, with one arm, displaying all their incredible awards, marching outside the Pentagon in 70 or 71, and saying they wanted the Vietnamese to win. Now, when that happens inside a country's army, it frightens the high command and the rulers of the state much, much more than any stupid terrorist attacks, because this goes right to the heart of the matter. Our army, our soldiers, our people are upset. So I say both for the Russians and to the commander-in-chief of NATO in the White House, that the one way, I mean, it may not succeed and we don't barely have an anti-war movement, of stopping this is for huge, large mass movements, gatherings in the United States, even on the scale of Black Lives Matter, to say Ukrainian lives matter, let's bring this war to an end. No escalation and no rubbing Putin's face in the dust and stupidities like that. End the war. Get the Russian troops out of there. They will only move out of there if they receive some firm guarantees, uh, not from the Ukrainians, uh, but from the United States, which is centrally involved now, and the NATO powers inside the war. So NATO has become a central military arm of the of the United States. It's it's a military organization, and uh, as Bush said, Bush Jr. W said during the Iraq war, he said, we don't care much. Once we decide on a thing, if the UN will back it, we'll go with the UN. If the NATO will back it, we'll go with NATO. If neither of those two will back it, we'll go in on our own. It's not a big deal for us. And so obviously that is the critical position of the United States military high command when the politicians have decided to go to war. Um, that So that is the role NATO plays as the military arm trying to assert U.S. hegemony in Europe and beyond. I mean, the NATO occupation of Afghanistan was called um, enduring freedom. That's what they called it. Um, so all we can do is fight, argue publicly for to try and bring this totally unnecessary uh, uh, war to an end. Tarek, we have to pause here for just a second. You've talked about lots of things that uh, I know we'd like to come back to. But first, let me say that this is Cal Winslow and Loretta Rojas. We're your host today, and our program is Talking About California. And this is KZYX, Mendocino County, listener-supported radio. Our guest this uh, evening is Tarek Ali, the renowned writer and anti-war activist who 
once again has spoken out against war and in support of anti-war movements everywhere. Just to interject a, a question about a couple of definitions and then go back to some of the points you've made. There are some ideas around, like, uh, is this a a new war of imperialisms? Is uh, Russia just replacing the Soviet Union? Uh, That's one thing. Or is this about Putin, a new devil who's right up there with with Assad and and Saddam Hussein, even Hitler? How do you uh, think about those issues? Look, um, Cal, in my opinion, I think describing Russia as an imperialist state is a bit far-fetched. How I would describe them is a large ultra-nationalist state which will defend its sovereignty and its national interests. Uh, These are not interests that extend to the globe as such, but basically extend to the areas which have been occupied since Tsarism, which were given away by the Bolsheviks. Um, The first thing the Bolsheviks did was to declare Finland, Poland, and the Ukraine as independent states. Uh, And they developed in different ways. Uh, I won't go into the history too much, which is one reason why Putin absolutely hates Lenin and uh, Lenin's writings on national self-determination. Uh, Lenin at one point said, why should Tsarist Turkestan, Russian Turkestan uh, and its occupation be any different from what the French are up to in Algeria? He said, there's no difference. So you've got, but the Bolshevik revolution itself then divided these peoples and the more progressive wanted. I mean, the Ukrainians initially voted to be part of the Soviet Union and that's where they remain. Many, many Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians fought in the Second World War under the banners of the Red Army, Uh, much, much more than fought and deserted to Hitler, which they also did. So I think we've got to get this thing in balance as to what is actually going on. I mean, the Russians, as many American realists are saying, were prepared for a deal. Uh, both Yeltsin and Gorbachev wanted to be part of NATO. They said, we're now the same. Why can't we be part of NATO? Good question. Why they couldn't be part of NATO is because the United States felt that that the new Russia, which was they liked, was indigestible, and it would be too large to maintain U.S. hegemony. And what they were most fearful of was... Uh, uh, Russia and NATO combining with the Germans, the reunified Germans, and actually exercising a lot of power and being able to overrule the United States. Whether that would have happened, I don't know. But that is certainly what uh, uh, they were frightened of. The Russians then said, we are now a European country, let's be part of the European Union. That, too, was rejected. So to call Russia a power which is intent on global domination is just, it's not credible. It really isn't a credible idea, in my opinion. Basically, Putin is trying it on. He's been shocked and surprised by the scale of opposition 
inside Russia itself. This has got nothing to do with the Soviet Union or the thinking even of the Soviet leaders who uh, broke with Stalin, like Khrushchev and, you know, the rest, and tried to normalize things in that country. It's got nothing to do with that. This is a completely new regime, as it says. And Putin denounces the Bolsheviks nonstop. <clears throat> it says they wrecked our country, which is the view of the right throughout Europe, that the, that was the biggest tragedy in Europe was the Bolshevik Revolution. Putin is in agreement with them. So why demonize him that much when this is what is sort of common sense of the day within the academy and in uh, the politics, the dominant politics and the ideology uh, of the West? So I don't, uh, <clears throat> I don't accept that uh, view. That right, you know, there is no way in which Putin's Russia can be described in any way as equivalent to the United States. Leave alone the United States and the NATO countries put together. Uh, what is true, and what is upsetting the United States now in preparing their new strategy is that if they target China at the same time as they're fighting Russia, that is not an easy thing to do. So meetings with the Indian leadership, the uh, you know, brushing aside of Imran Khan in, in Pakistan that I talked on Democracy Now! this morning, this is all part of trying to tighten their grip and their hold on the countries in Asia who they hope can be lined up against um, against China. That's what's going on. And if people can't see that, I really feel sad because it, it's a sign that the there's not that much engagement with foreign politics and foreign affairs in the United States. Uh, in <clears throat> the last we saw of that was the 70s and 80s of the campaigns against uh, U.S. interventions in Central America and the Reagan's funding of the Contras, etc., etc. Since then, after the Iraq war, people have fallen silent. And that, to me, is, is quite disturbing. I'll just add one more thing to reply what Loretta earlier asked is, how is this linked to identity? Well, in a very loose and broad sense, as I suggested earlier, that when people in Europe see white people being bombed, uh, their reaction is very different. I mean, over a million people died in Iraq. And it's not that people liked it, but very few people uh, said that Bush and the late uh, Rumsfeld and Cheney should be tried for war crimes or Tony Blair in this country. Why not? What the Israelis have done to Palestine day in and day out now for two decades is shocking. It doesn't shock the United States. And it doesn't shock most people, though I'm very glad to see that within the Jewish communities in the United States, the younger people are beginning to find this repulsive and saying that they feel no sense of loyalty, not a majority, but not far from a majority. So there are positive <clears throat> signs of that. But overall, 
it's very different. The problem arises when they have to choose between different sets of white people, like they had to do during the Yugoslav civil war, where the United States, that was the first war to expand NATO, by the way, the war in Yugoslavia when NATO uh, intervened to crush one side and the German Luftwaffe, the Air Force, probably dusted up old bombing plans from these days of the Second World War because they were bombing the same places and the same cities in Serbia that they had done during that war. I mean, I was in different parts of the former Yugoslavia soon after that war, and there was a striking solidarity, especially amongst young intellectuals, against the crude eruption of nationalism in all the different segments of Yugoslavia. And anyone who knows anyone or anything about the former Yugoslavia knows that it could have been spared all this had the European Union said, here's five billion to pay your army, to keep the country united, etc., etc. They were going economically bankrupt, which encouraged the, uh, the nationalism. So there they had to make out that the Serbs were the demons, infinitely worse than anyone else, and these were the reasons, etc., because they had chosen that particular side. Had they chosen the Serbian side, uh, they would have done the same vis-a-vis -vis the Croats and the uh, Bosniaks. But they chose the other side because Serbia was too Slav Slavic and very close historically to, uh, to, to Russia. And that's when the U.S. intervened very heavily to stop the Russians from doing anything, not even allowing them to sell the latest anti-aircraft weaponry to the Serbs. So identity, to a certain extent, plays a part, and it does particularly in this war. When people see these horrors on the screen and want to do something, the tragedy is that what they wish to do is determined by the mainstream Me media. media. Yeah. And uh, not thank by you. Like you and me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for this incredible um, historical lesson, history lesson that you are sharing with us today. And we wanted to. Um, to leave some time at the end of this program, uh, we still have 15 minutes or so. And uh, <clears throat> what you are describing about the reaction, it has been quite um, interesting to me here in a small, you know, we are in Northern California, small county uh, by the Pacific Ocean. Um, and we have seen an incredible display of support towards the Ukrainian people and the, and demanding the end of this war. Uh, so the town is covered with flags, Ukrainian flags, and any kind of demonstrations. Um, a civic group is trying to pass today a declaration of, of for Bragg City Council rejecting the war and supporting the Ukrainian. Um, so what is the you, you do you talk about the role of us as uh, citizens into the movement to stop the war by developing a peace movement 
So we would like to, to talk a little bit uh, about that, of course. Well, look, there is a lot of support. I have my sympathies with the people of Ukraine who have been targeted by the Russians and who before that have been used by NATO and pro-NATO politicians. Um, they are not going to win by escalating the war. That's all one can say. If people who are genuinely concerned with the future of Ukraine and with the future of its people and the ability of four million refugees to return to Ukraine, I don't think they will. Refugees, once they get safe havens, tend never to return, by the way. That's just a fact of life. You know, if you look at all the... Koreans and Vietnamese who fled to the United States after the ending of uh, those wars, uh, even those who are sympathetic to the current regimes in those countries don't go back because they found another country and get attached to it. So I don't think unless the war ends very quickly, the Ukrainian refugees are going to go back. But I think... <clears throat> We just have to carry on explaining that escalating the war isn't necessarily going to end it. It's going to make it much worse. Unless people, and say are a few crazies who are demanding this, to set up a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone means a declaration of war against Russia. And Russia has a capacity, a nuclear capacity, second only to that of the United States. And the countries, were they to escalate the war, Putin is perfectly capable of targeting Europe. I mean, he, they, the Russians have never done that. They've never targeted Western Europe, ever. But they will do it if they are pushed too far. And so it's actually in nobody's interests to push this uh, more war, more arms solution. It doesn't help the Ukrainians. Uh, even though their politicians might be demanding it uh, with NATO support. But it will help the arms industries and the merchants of war, who, of course, are raking it in already. And the people using sanctions against Russia to raise oil prices, these oil billionaires are also raking it in. So a war is not only what people see on their screens of suffering and destruction, it is also what is going on behind the scenes. And I think that people have to be told about. I know you're doing it, but were this news to become regular news items, it would have an impact on people, and people would say that's enough. And, I mean, I think... Biden, who decided to escalate the conflict last uh, uh, winter, um, saying make all plans, we're going to take the Ukraine into NATO, made a foolish move. People should understand that because wars are not declared by people for no rhyme or reason. Even the Germans in both world wars in Europe said, look at the situation. This is the size of Germany. This is the size of Britain. This is the size of France. Just look at how much real estate, to put it crudely, the British own on three continents and the French own, and look at how much we have. 
So either they do a deal with us and share the colonies, or else there'll be trouble. I mean, so, you know, the Second World War was not simply about murdering Jews. That was a side effect, unfortunately, and tragically. It was a war to reestablish Germany's position in the world as a major world power. And so this is the case with all wars. So you have to ask, what are the circumstances and causes of these wars? So in the case of the Ukraine, as I've spelled out, and there's many, many very serious people, uh, U.S. historians who are part of the traditional U.S. foreign policy establishment have written, we made mistakes, including the head of the current CIA, who know Bill Burns, who knows it better than almost anyone else, because he knows Russia well. That is how knowledge, historical knowledge, and immediate knowledge of what's going on is extremely important. And I know people these days don't like hearing that because it's all very simple. They prefer problems in black and white. Well, problems are never, never black and white. There's a huge gray in between. And it's that gray, the gray blur in between that has to be sorted out. Yes. I I was also thinking about how we here in the United States, we are somehow isolated and fed also by the media in a way that not everybody understands these issues. There is not enough, perhaps, education in my point of view. But I want to let Carl to participate in the conversation. Well, you've answered lots of our, our questions, but maybe two more if we have time for those. One is a point, I think, that... Um, Noam Chomsky made recently, and that is that realistically, I think he calls it real politic, uh, this is all, all to the good for the U.S. and for our policies in Europe, the strengthening of, of the EU and, and, and NATO, uh, good for the generals and good for the arms manufacturers. You've, you've mentioned that, but you might talk about it as a factor. And then I'd like to get back to, uh, if we have time, to any practical advice you have for us, meaning really really our listeners, but for, for all of us on what are the salient points that can be made uh, to people to try to build an opposition. Uh, so there, if we have time, there are two questions there. Well, the last question I've been answering for the last sort of 50 minutes, Cal, and in those replies to your earlier questions is obviously a way of answering people and talking to people and, you know, presenting them with... Well, maybe I should put it this way, Tarek. Have have you had any successes with Stop the War or... uh, Well, well, we we have not allowed the pro-war liberals uh, or the pro-war right to control everything. We have had our meetings. uh, We had a pretty huge online international day against the war a few days ago where Noam spoke and I spoke and others spoke. And we had a, a peace movement guy from Russia and a peace movement person from the Ukraine. The first such gathering 
which I think Stop the War will put out uh, on video soon if they haven't already done it. But it was very moving to hear the Russian and the Ukrainian peace movements come together in this event organized by Stop the War in the United Kingdom. Uh, We haven't had huge demonstrations, but we've had reasonable demonstrations in every city. And our basic line is Putin, uh, Russian troops out of Ukraine, no to NATO enlargement. And people actually seem to accept that and accept the link, accept the political parties. I mean, Stop the War has been attacked in Parliament, both by Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, and by Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, who's Johnson's understudy. He's not a leader of the opposition. He does mainly follow the government uh, on, on most things. Um, and he too has attacked the Stop the War Committee, forcing the handful of left members of parliament to withdraw their names from a Stop the War letter and threatening suspensions. Uh, so as a result, Stop the War is completely isolated from the British Parliament. It can find Russians and Ukrainians to speak. It can find Irish members of Parliament and the European Parliament to speak. And I'm sure we could find French and German parliamentarians to speak. But the British Parliament has been cut off, literally every single party, from speaking at Stop the War platforms. And there are some demands going up saying that Stop the War should be proscribed. No Labour member, party member should be allowed to join it. So when that they get so worked up, I feel we are, you know, doing something that is helpful. Uh, otherwise, why not just ignore us, just denounce us as Putin's patsies <clears throat> or whatever, which they do. But since people these days watch a lot online, that doesn't have you know, the impact it would if there was no uh, internet. Uh, The other thing, uh, what Noam said about this war is good for the United States, he's right. That's how they're using it. Uh, And they hope to totally dominate NATO and to drag in Sweden and Finland and a few other countries. So if they can't have the Ukraine into NATO, they'll have um, Sweden and Finland, which had previously been fairly neutral. Of course, now Finland is also on the borders of Russia. So we'll see if they go in or not. But that is what the US is planning. And then unite this force that they've created um, to confront China. That is what is going on. Whether all the Europeans will uh, clamber on to the bandwagon to isolate China? I do not know. I hope not. There is some dissent within the German elite, which has been expressed. uh, And it's a German, leading German, the head of the German Navy was sacked for saying at a conference in India, I don't see, I don't know why we are provoking the Russians. The Russians are traditionally a great country in Europe and provoking Putin in this fashion. 
is not going to help anyone, neither us, nor the Russians, nor the people we're supposedly trying to help. This was before the war started. But even before the war started, to say that was unacceptable, he was sacked on the spot, 24 hours, within 24 hours, by the Social Democratic Defense Minister. So they try to stop debates, and especially debates which shouldn't be in public anyway. But now they're trying to stop debates by telling Labour MPs, don't participate in these events, because to participate in these events is to criticize NATO. NATO has become the new gold standard for the mainstream political parties of Europe. That is what is going on. It may still backfire. I mean, I am not 100% convinced that this is a permanent settlement. I think the Ukraine has forced many Europeans to do this. But I think both the French and the Germans are somewhat unhappy. And we'll now see what happens in France after the next round of the elections. I mean, Mm. if Marine Le Pen wins, which I doubt very much, by the way, were she to win, she is definitely not going to accept what the United States is saying. She's publicly, she you know doesn't break with what the French elite is doing. But no one doubts that she's, and she quotes de Gaulle often, which is funny because the French fascists always hated de Gaulle because he pulled out of Algeria. But now anyone and everyone will be used. So the situation in Europe itself is temporarily stable and even strengthened militarily. But I don't think that this is something that can last for more than a few years. Thank you very much. I know you're a very, very busy man. I uh, certainly advise all of our listeners to look uh, for your writings, both fiction and nonfiction, and uh, give you a, a really hearty thanks for taking the time to speak to Americans. Sometimes, often, I think, so, you know, we don't really deserve it to have friends like you, but uh, we're so happy that we do. This is uh, KZYX, Tarek. This is KZYX, Mendocino County Community Listener Supported Radio. And this ends our short series on the crisis in Ukraine. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>